Hello, I'm Bentley. And I'm Samuel. And this is the Re-View Podcast. He's doing wind-whistling noises. Yeah, over the frozen tundra of Fargo, which apparently is, I guess that's the funny thing after all these years that they, they some hipsters want to keep making Fargo stuff. And I went to the movie in the theaters back in 1996 because I love the Coen brothers. And I grew up in the upper Midwest in, on the Great Plains. I was just over the line from Minnesota in Brookings, South Dakota. And I go to see this and I I didn't like it. I, I Well, because you perceived it as making fun of basically the people you grew up with. Well, I have all these mixed feelings. When, they, when, when Marge... You know, the deputy is sitting there interviewing the two prostitutes in their accents. I literally was having flashbacks. <laughs> I, I It was a problem just for me. I was like, I need to leave the theater. I can't watch this. Because mm-hmm. I was living in Virginia at the time. You know, I had I have only been back to South Dakota a few times since I graduated from high school. And um, you only went back for Jackrabbit ice cream. And I went back for, for the, yeah, the Dairy Barn ice cream. Um so maybe I shouldn't even be doing this podcast. I should just recuse myself because I cannot watch Fargo with an objective eye. It, it's too like if the Coen Brothers make fun of Southerners during the press, the Depression during Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Okay, I can enjoy that. You know, I like the characters as they're drawn in the bowling alley in the Big Lebowski. I love when they make fun of 1950s advertising and corporate worlds, right, in the Hudsucker Proxy. And maybe this is just my personal problem because I grew up amongst people who talk like this. Well, no one's unimpeachable, not even the Coen brothers. You and I have also talked at great length about how uh, we consider Burn After Reading to be an exceptionally weak film in their catalog. You know, everyone's allowed to have a few misfires. And they crank out so many movies. No, I could I could give you five Coen brother movies right now that I don't like. God, I've watched Barton Fink like four times trying to like that movie because it's about old Hollywood, which I love. And I, it just doesn't make a but movie. You liked, you, you liked Hail Caesar, right? I did like Hail Caesar. I did. Which is another old Hollywood thing. Yes. uh, It's a little lighter on its feet. Yeah. So what's funny is we watched Fargo again. It was my first time watching it since seeing it in the theater 20 years ago. And to me, it sits perfectly in between two of their great movies. I absolutely adore Raising Arizona. And at one point, my brother, my sister, and I could do the whole movie. We could... Say line for line every part of Raising Arizona. It remains one of my favorite movies, but it's clearly a comedy. And then on the other end of the scale, where they finally win their Oscar for directing, is No Country for Old Men, which is one of the darkest things you'll ever see. After I watched that in the theater, it was pretty obvious to me that it's the same plot as Raising Arizona. It's just no humor, right? It's it's the dark version of what they did in Raising Arizona. So I appreciate both of those movies for where they sit on kind of the storytelling spectrum. And in the middle of those two, in the middle of the spectrum, is Fargo, which is trying to be funny and dark and gritty. And it just doesn't work for me. It still doesn't work. I think it's a little... I think it's just very it has a it has a cruelty to it that I don't think Ugh. a lot of the other Cohen brothers even the dark Cohen brothers stuff possesses. Oh, like, no country is quite cruel. Come no, 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 but but no country for old men celebrates 
ordinary people. It's an ordinary person who at the end of No Country for Old Men tells the, the angel of death character, this, this monster who's been going around killing yeah. people with this coin flip, no, I'm not going to flip your coin. I'm not going to be party to your monstrousness. Well, that's also in Fargo. I mean, that's, I think people like Fargo for the setting and for Frances McDormand. I guess, but I... Uh, and I, she is pitched as a very ordinary person who clearly has brains. Like, it's interesting, re-watching this movie, how they show you that she sort of acts like everybody else, she sounds like everybody else, she's going through the same little daily tropes, but you can see when her wheels start to turn in her brain that she is smarter than these people. And she is a great character, and she absolutely should have won the Oscar for Best Actress. But around her is a mess. Yeah. I... I, I I don't know. It just feels really soul-crushing. It feels really pessimistic at its heart. Like, even with the ending that you have, it, it feels very, like... Again, it feels like Burn After Reading, where Burn After Reading concludes with, Oh, what did we learn? Not to do it again. You know, like... <laughs> like you know, it doesn't seem like anyone has has learned anything or changed or become better. Frances was always a good person. Mm-hmm. You know, she mm-hmm. was always out there trying to do the right thing. And and I'm glad that she's not compromised by anything, but at the same time, it, it's like, I don't know, it's just everyone's kind of awful to each other, and people are weird and awkward, and I feel like the places where I should be laughing, I just can't, because it's maybe just not my style of humor. You know, like, I there's a scene where she's, like, reconnecting with, like, this old guy from, from high school, and yeah. he's really weird and stilted and awkward, and I think we're supposed to find him funny. We're supposed to laugh at him. I guess, but, but that's, the scene has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's, it's so it's awkward. It's really stilted and awkward, and, yeah. and you know, what the later revelation that he's, like, you know, he was never married, and he's just, like, a borderline creepy stalker dude. It's just, like, these are all weird and gross and, and not pleasant people to be around, and... You know, they're also not that interesting, so they can't really, you can't spend, I can't really spend a whole movie around these people. Well, I'm still trying to put my finger on why it doesn't hang together, because in in their other movies... It is difficult to, like, describe. Why does this not hang together? Well, that's what we're going to work on, but in their other movies that do work, there are plenty of oddball characters, and I celebrate them, right? So, actually, Frances McDormand is in Raising Arizona, and she's in just a few scenes... She's a certain type. She's an oddball character, and her lines are hilarious. She is hilarious, right? That movie, all the oddball characters hang together really well. And in No Country for Old Men, I tell people all the time that one of my favorite scenes is after you know all the dramatic action. You know, Tommy Lee Jones is sitting in the kitchen of his mentor, right? He's gone out into the countryside to try and make sense of all this. He's literally trying to sum up the, the movie, the experience, what does it all mean? And he's sitting with, you know, his mentor who's long retired. And that character, you know, the guy who plays the mentor, I mean, he's a very well-defined character that you only get one scene with, but it works. So why doesn't it work in Fargo? I, I, I keep going back to maybe I just can't accept it because he, they're making fun of people I grew up with. And to be honest, people they grew up with, right? They're, the Coen brothers are from Minnesota. And I just, there's something off about this movie that doesn't work. I, the one thing that I pegged, because we also watched the first episode of the new TV show, which is in its third season. It's doing very well. We didn't know, but you can see on IMDb now that you've called it up, they actually did like a TV movie in 2003 where they were trying to carry forward 
the Frances McDormand character. She's not in it. They get another. They get uh, Edie Falco, I think, to play, you know, uh, Marge Gunderson. But somebody in Hollywood loves Fargo, and they keep trying to carry this idea forward. And I'm not sure why, because it's really odd. Yeah, I just this idea that the nice people in Minnesota have a dark side and are willing to, you know, put each other in wood chippers or something. I, I don't know, it's weird. Well, to be fair, that's a foreign guy. Yeah, it's a foreign um, guy. And in the TV show, what we get is Billy Bob Thornton, who's clearly not from Minnesota, just kind of cutting through these people like a scythe. And my problem with the TV show is that you can see the writing. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of my problems is when I can see the script people and the actors and the directors being just too clever that you can see the strings. Ugh, Billy Bob Thornton in the Fargo TV show has a monologue about like, there used to be places on maps that said, here be dragons. And I'm just like, oh Shut my god. Up. I've heard this line six times in the past five years in three different video games. Like, you can't right, right. you can't <laughs> do that anymore. The, the dumb monologue about here there be dragons, you can't do it anymore. And they do yeah. it unflinching in the Fargo TV show, and it's yeah. dumb, and it's bad. So, I... It's very easy for me to turn this into a podcast about the Coen Brothers movies I do like, because... I feel like it's just, I don't know, I feel like it's an undercooked version of films that I really like. Like you say, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a dark film that has elements of comedy, so I feel like when they strip the comedy out and they do No Country for Old Men, that's one of my favorite films ever. I've only ever seen it once because it's such a difficult watch. Yes, same, I, same with me. It was really hard to walk out of the theater after seeing that. Yeah. Well, because that movie is, is really about it's death. Yeah, it's, it's about death. Do you accept? Yeah, do you accept or do you fight death? Yeah, you know, and you're like, oh. <laughs> you know, and at the same time, it's uh, you know, it does have the screwball weird characters who you get so much of in probably my favorite pure comedy of the Coen Brothers, which is Big Lebowski. You know, Big Lebowski's great. Lebowski's yeah. great, and and that's filled with nothing but weird screwball ordinary people. Yeah, and and there's a group of people who. Like, the group of people who want to be the scary foreigners in The Big Lebowski are pretty inept. Yes. they suck. They're not putting yes. people through wood chippers. No. The worst they do is they burn a car. Yeah. And then when they realize that the people whose cars they've burned don't have the money, they go, well, that's not fair. <laughs> they realize that, you, you realize that underneath, I, lo I love The Big Lebowski because the message of The Big Lebowski is rich, poor, you know, War veteran, not war veteran, German, American, we're all just people. And we're all just trying yeah. to make it. Yeah. And you can either abide or you can not abide. But abiding is probably a good way to live your life. Yeah. And, and, so, and in, so, But instead, this movie has a wood chipper. Like, yeah, so Fargo, I think uh, people like it, right? People of my generation, Gen X, glommed onto it and still hold it in very high regard because... It came in that kind of mid-90s Tarantino wave, right? It is absolutely held up at the same time as Pulp Fiction. Well, it does have Steve Buscemi in it. And it's part of the Buscemi uh, stuff. So it's the Buscemi renaissance, as we'll call it. Exactly. So I get it, the, why it's held up as a classic. But you know what? I, I don't think it actually survives, right? I mean, looking at it 20 years later... Uh, there's other Bashimi stuff that's uh, more interesting. Um, 
the Coen brothers have many other movies that are more interesting. I love Miller's Crossing. Yeah. You know, Miller's Crossing has a lot of comedy and some savagery in it. Uh, it's got, you know, uh, whodunit. Uh, they've done much better films, and I don't know why Fargo continues to survive, other than maybe just Gen X nostalgia. Why would I ever watch Fargo when I can watch Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Well, exactly. Exactly. Or or other great, uh, you know, noir things. I mean, I, I saw the idea when they first put it on the screen. You know, let's do a dark crime noir in a place where people are supposed to be super nice, and it's wintertime. Ha, 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 right? You know, suddenly we're not getting the Humphrey Bogart, uh, L.A., black and white, post-war world. You know, let's do a noir in modern times in Minnesota. Ha, 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 ha. But that's just more of the same, I can see you writing the script. Yeah. I don't want to sit there and see you writing the script. This feels like something that was bandied about in a NYU or, yes. you know, UCLA dorm. It's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to sit in war in Minnesota? Yes. And it's like, okay, well, all right. It's an idea. It's an idea. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun thesis, but Francis McDermott's character really feels like the only person I can latch on to with any sort of interest. You well, know, let's be sort of... fair. William H. Macy, this is really the career maker for him. Oh, you don't think it was Jurassic Park 3? That comes after this. I was being, first off, I was joking. Oh, I love okay. that you continued with that because we both love Jurassic Park. I love 3. Jurassic Park, too. but but, but this is know, what puts him on the map. Dude, I know that. Okay, all right. Well, so you got to talk about because I see him as a much more authentic Minnesota character than her, right? I mean, she's clearly not from Minnesota. She does a good acting job, but his acting job makes me actually believe he's from Minnesota. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the great story of the behind the scenes of this of William H Macy is he did two readings for the part. And he was so worried that the Coen brothers were going to cast somebody else. He got really attached to the part. He actually flew out to where they were in New York City. I don't know if this is where they lived or if they were shooting a film there at the time. And he flew out and he just said, look, I'm really worried that you're going to mess up the movie by casting someone other than me. And if you don't give me the part, I'll kill your dog. (laughs) And he was joking about the dog part. But, like, he really flew out there and really just, like, begged them. And, and, I mean, I think it's it's a wonderful performance. But it is deeply uncomfortable to watch i mean it's and i guess that's the the objective of it so i suppose it succeeds in that yes but when you this is what i always come back to with a lot of these films especially with horror films i feel like if you make something that's deliberately hard to watch why would i keep watching it i don't really get off on seeing Stuff that's deliberately confrontational or deliberately well, like I want to drive the audience to a point where they're squirming in their seats because I I, I feel like that eventually, eventually you reach a threshold where it's like, OK, if this is so unpleasant, why would I put myself through this? Not everything needs to be a Marvel movie. Right. Not at all. But there is a like him lying to his son about the wife is really hard to watch. Yeah. And and yeah, it, it's just. I don't know. I, I don't know where the line is. I don't profess to know where my own line for this is. I don't know where the artistic line for this is. But I definitely have an internal barometer of like, okay, I really can't watch this sort of thing anymore. I can't watch this person be humiliated or yeah. hurt or yeah. or continue. In his case, he's not being humiliated or hurt. He's making such horrible, morally duplicitous decisions yeah. and, and still presenting himself as if he's this aw shucks kind of guy like 
it boils my my blood. And I suppose that's I suppose that is a marker of effective filmmaking. Yes. But there is a threshold, and I don't know. I don't know where I could. It's just this is totally a personal note. This is my personal taste. So it is. It's your personal taste. Uh, I will defend uh, movies that try to do that. You know, horror movies and and really tough dramas because. Uh, art is on some level emotional it's visceral and so if we enjoy uh, art for plugging in other emotions then we have to allow for you know discomfort unease dread yeah you know that's a part of art absolutely yeah. so yeah. even if we don't choose to spend our 10 bucks to watch it it is something in the toolbox for an artist yeah, yeah absolutely um, and i would never deny anyone that tool i'm just well that's why you get me. the scream right that's why you get much as the scream that's that's supposed to be uncomfortable and unsettling yeah. <laughs> at the time so yeah. i get that about fargo you know that it is supposed to be uncomfortable and unsettling we actually reviewed it with my sister and uh gosh laura had terrible when, when we were coming up on the wood chipper man she was she was literally oh, squirming God, no! She was squirming in her chair. Yeah, yeah. So it does have an impact. Um, um, I just don't feel like it has much to say beyond that kind of mid-90s Tarantino shock factor. Yeah. Right? If I'm going to sit through that, I want it to be art. I want it to be worth my time to consider these things. Yeah, I don't know what Fargo has to say. I, I'm not sure what it has to say. Uh, and it just keeps getting worse, right? So we watch the TV Oh, pilot, and it's Jesus. instead of William H Macy, now you get Martin Freeman as that character. But you know, here's this guy that we all know is British. We've seen him in many other things, right? He's in the Sh the Sherlock show, and he's so clearly acting as William H Macy as a Minnesotan, right? Yeah. So now we've got two generations of the strain, and it's getting weaker. You know, I mean, he's doing the little hemming and hawing, but he's clearly acting. And I hate seeing the acting. I want something that feels more naturalistic. I, I just wanted a better show. Like, I'm watching Fargo, and I'm just like, I can see the writing. This is not... Like, what human being would... would... I don't know where the entertainment comes from. I don't know where... Like, what, what makes this appointment television viewing? What makes you want to come back... You know, day after day, hour after hour, watching this thing in installments and seeing how horrible Martin Freeman's life can get. Like, I don't... I'm right. Not, I, I, going when we that. had watched the first 20 minutes of the pilot of the TV show, and it felt like 40 minutes. Right? It's just dragging. It's I, painful. I, and so here's why talking about seeing the writing matters. And that is that, you know, it, it, it's a thin view of life. Uh, some of the other Coen brother movies that I like so much have kind of that layered, uh, very kinetic look at life that's in uh, other movies uh, and other directors that I like, like Orson Welles, where, you know, in Miller's Crossing, people are bantering and talking over each other and coming at this uh, plot from lots of different angles all the time. Same thing with Raising Arizona. You know, at the beginning, we see like the local police are clearly dumb trying to investigate like the kidnapping of this furniture magnate's children. But in the same room, you've got the FBI sort of talking over them and, and competing with them. You know, it's messy. Life is messy. And when I watch the Fargo movie, the first thing I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. We've got a murder on the open road of a highway trooper. And at no point 
Do the state police ever show up again in the movie? It is left to a local sheriff's deputy, Francis McDormand, to solve the crime. That's baloney. Yeah. That's absolutely thinly sliced baloney where the Coen brothers are taking the easy way out and they're they're focusing on her as the character, but it reads as false because she doesn't have to contend with any bureaucracy, any interference from anybody else. It's just her movie and no, her crime like this, to solve. It's too like simple and it's just Sam bogus. Bullet detective in Minnesota. Like it, it's bogus. she's got carte blanche. Like it's bogus. And I have the same feeling again about uh, the Martin Freeman start to the first season of the Fargo TV show where the whole setup, you know, is a murder that happens because he had a guy bully him in high school. It's just not believable that we would ramp from what is pretty mundane and, and you know, an experience that's very common across America that suddenly it's going to lead to murder Two his, decades later, his wife too. it's baloney. It's just baloney. Just, it doesn't feel real, and so why would I sit through something that's so thin? It's very disconcerting to me as well because I just like, I I just just in the past week, and so I don't know when this podcast would go up. If this will still be relevant, but you've brought personal stuff to the podcast before. I I just like to touch on something for a moment. I have been in this weird place just over like the past week where I'm trying to figure out. I just kind of went through this moment where, like, I realized in in both good and bad ways, I have no idea what effect I have on people. I don't know. Uh, I, I I have great friends. I, I love my friends. But I have no idea kind of, I guess, where I factor in in their lives or, or where they place in my own life. And, and to see, like, something as... as Something like the Fargo TV series where these bonds are like non-existent between family members. I'm just like, okay, I really do not need this right now. I really yeah. So I was not also in a very receptive place to see Martin Freeman just being crushed under his wife's like heel. I, I really and you know, hitting his own brother, like that's just I'm just not I'm not in a place in my life where I can be receptive to that because I just I I Human connections right now are very messy for me anyway. Okay. Well, so it's a hard sell to show somebody yeah. who snaps, okay? Yeah. In the Fargo movie, you're supposed to believe that William H. Macy basically snaps, you know, after being humiliated by his father-in-law year after year after year. And actually, I think the movie does a good job showing that. I do believe that about William H. Macy's character in that movie. Some of the other stuff about Francis's character, I don't believe. It's, it's a little too thin and false. But that part... You know, the, the the good guy goes bad. I bought that in the movie. I don't buy it with Martin Freeman in the TV show because it was they're just sort of cramming it into that first episode. Well, and he's really abdicate he's really absolved of any sort of responsibility. I mean he, By the Billy Bob Thornton character. By the Billy Bob Thornton it, character. Like yeah. he, he like there's a scene where he confronts the Billy Bob Thornton character and the Billy Bob Thornton character is like, Oh no, you're culpable, you're part of this. It's like no, he really isn't. No, he really yeah. isn't. And if I were Martin Freeman, I'd be like you know what? Actually, hey, buddy, there are rules, and uh, I just I, called the cops. And I'm calling the cops, right. So it's just too thin a beginning for the TV show. I might still watch some more episodes, but there's a lot of other great writing and acting going on out there that doesn't show you the wires. You can't see the puppet strings being moved around. And so go watch The Wire. <laughs> right. All of these podcasts that we've recorded today are just thinly veiled references to my father saying, go watch The Wire. Which we're going to podcast about at some point. But yeah, you know, Fargo, it, it actually ought to be something that I love. 
You know, if they were to get those characters so right and that scenery so right, I love movies set in the snow. I absolutely love a movie like Nobody's Fool, one of the last things that Paul Newman did, because I'm sitting there in the theater watching it and I can hear the snow crunch, right? That whole movie is set in the wintertime in this dumpy little town in upstate New York and I love it. I should love Fargo, but I don't. I've tried and there's something that's so false about it that I think it's like when you hear veterans talk about uh, war movies that get it wrong yeah. or police veterans talking about, you know, police movies or TV shows that get it wrong. There's something that's like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. If they get You're it wrong. You're a Great Plains veteran. And, and they get, get it wrong. wrong. They get it wrong. There's Which is weird because it's a, it's a movie made by Great Plains veterans. But, yeah. You know. I, I don't know what it is, but it's wrong. They just get it wrong. So... so. Uh, I will Fargo, say... Fargo, out of the canon, man, so... I think so. And, and again... Well, because the Coen brothers have like four or five or six other films that easily go into the canon. The they canon. can lose yeah. one. Yeah. I'm not sure why it's in the canon. I want to touch on the millennial Gen X boomer thing again, uh, because that's an undercurrent in our podcast. We need the Q on here. I think he likes Fargo. He'd be able to explain it to us. Okay, so that... Excellent. We Maybe we'll do a sequel to this, because yeah. it's funny. So the Coen brothers are clearly... Boomers, right? It's informed some of their movies very explicitly, like the Llewellyn Davis movie about folk singers in New York in oh, the 60s. Oh, God. All right. Okay. Hang on. We're not going to talk about that. I'm just saying that's a reference point I, for I them. I want Inside Llewellyn Davis. I want Inside Poe Dameron. <laughs> but their whole career has been making movies for Gen Xers, right? We are their audience. Yeah. My generation is the generation that floated their whole career. They don't make a movie until Blood Simple comes out in, I think, 1980 or 81. And uh, Raising Arizona is a big uh, cult favorite of my generation. We're the ones who are buying the movie tickets that give the Coen brothers their career. So it is very interesting to me to see what resonates with your generation now, you know, to bind all three of these generations together. And maybe there's just something generational in... um, Fargo that I don't like. I know what binds the uh, Boyd family generations together. Soggy Bottom Boys. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do need to watch uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou again. Magnificent filmmaking, that movie. All right, but I think that's that's what we got for Fargo. I yeah. Anything else? No, I. It's it just it's it's like a slush ball, man. (laughs) It is like a slush ball. Slush ball. It's funny because I can tell you exactly what's wrong with Barton Fink and some of their others, but I can't quite put my finger on what's wrong with Fargo. Don't have to. It can just not be. Cannot be. Just not in the can. Can't you can't be all things for all people, even the Coen Brothers. At all times. Yeah. Yeah, you can be right for all the people sometime, and you can be right for For some some of the the people people all all the the time. But yeah, Fargo, man, it's a miss. Yeah. All right, we're going to leave you in the snow, buried underneath the marker of the little scraper, because apparently that money has still never been found. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, uh, the last note I would like to end on, it's a weird note, but you know they made, some, some, some Japanese filmmaker made an independent Japanese film about some woman going looking for the Fargo money because she thought it was real. Oh, really? And she, like, dies of exposure. It's like a two-hour, like, little indie film. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. That was a real story? uh, It's based on a true story. But, again, I think they've exaggerated it. Oh, by the way, Fargo is not based on a true story. That thing at the beginning is a lie. It's but but Which it's is funny. funny. It's funny, it's but funny. it's it's a lie. Yeah, but it's a weird indie Japanese film that is uh, actually starring uh, the young 
Asian woman from uh, Pacific Rim. Oh, what's it called? Do you know? I have to look it up again, but it's... Why don't you look it up real fast? We yeah. do have a minute where we can stall while you look that up. And maybe that's my problem with Fargo is at the beginning, you know, there's a title card that talks about how this is a true story. And so if you, as a filmmaker, are going to pitch something as being true, right? I mean, that's a pretty bold claim that you're like saying, well, we have these characters and this setting so right that we're going to even claim that it's true. Right? I mean, it, it's a big claim, and maybe I'm just giving Fargo a C minus because of that claim. Right? They're claiming that they're making an A plus, and I'm like, no. And because you claim that, I'm going to actually knock you down another grade. Kumi, Kumiko, the treasure hunter. 2014. Frustrated with her mundane life, a Tokyo office worker, Riniko uh, Kikuchi, Becomes obsessed with a fictional movie that she mistakes for a documentary. Fixating on a scene where stolen cash is buried in North Dakota, she travels to America to find it. Huh. Oh, wait, no, it's directed by David Zellner. Okay, so it's an American film. Interesting. Okay. Well, so that's just another example of how certain people adore Fargo. This guy made a whole movie that is a form of a sequel to Fargo, but I just don't get it. Yeah. Well, there we go, folks. Sorry, it just doesn't cross the finish line for us. If we're wrong, tell us we're wrong, but I don't know, man. Just We got four or five other Coen Brothers films that are easily going to slide into the can, so you can't call us haters. <laughs> and we'll talk about those another time. And this has been the Re-View Podcast. Podcast.